As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome. Uh, we are, I, we, I think we're live on the air this morning with Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod. Today is Thursday, June 17th. No, it's not. It's June 22nd. Uh, so I don't even know what's going on. But we're here. I'm here. You're here. We're live. It is June 22nd, 2021. Uh, wrap your head around that. Uh, we are excited to be here with you this morning. We got a big show. Parker. Uh, are you, Parker says it's nice to watch you uh, on the treadmill for once. Are you on the treadmill right now? That's fantastic. We should do the show once with me on the treadmill and see if I can breathe my way through it. I'm going to guess I couldn't. Uh, I've not been as good about my treadmill lately, Parker, but you're reminding me. Uh, maybe later on today I'll get on the treadmill. Uh, it's such a good thing to do. It really is. Uh, so thrilled that you're here, Parker, because in a little while we are going to have Special Education Attorney Bonnie Yates with us, and I'm, I have asked her your question, Parker, the one that you had sent in for us. So we're going to get to that in a little while. But before that, we still have some business to take care of. I want to welcome everybody. If you're here for the first time, welcome. Uh, we're going to be here live for the next hour talking about topics uh, surrounding autism with a, you know, a 360-degree viewpoint. We welcome everyone and anyone. And especially those in that larger autism community that we're always talking about that starts and the beating heart of it is individuals who are on the autism spectrum. But we additionally welcome everyone into that community who loves those individuals. So that's sometimes parents, sometimes brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, teachers, uh, healthcare practitioners, you know, anybody who cares about somebody on the spectrum and wants to see them get to all of the things that they want, all of the employment, all of the love interests, uh, relationships, 
all, all of it, um, hobbies, whatever it is that somebody is hanky, hankering for. If you love somebody on the spectrum and want to see them realize their dreams, then you come to the right place because that's what we want to at least talk about and embrace and sometimes dream about. I wish that weren't the case. I wish we were, I wish that castle was already built on the hill and people were living there. Um, but the reality is, is we're all trudging to get there. So we welcome you. We hope that you're here. Please feel free to write in. Parker has already written in and said hello, and I'm saying hi to Nisha. Please feel free to write in your questions, your comments, your concerns. We'll get to as many of them as we possibly can. If you are watching us live right now, you're probably watching on Facebook Live, on YouTube, on Twitter, or on our homepage. The reality is, and you might be watching us live in about 10 different other locations as well. We welcome all of you. But the easiest way to interact if you're watching live is to write in a comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Those show up immediately, almost immediately, almost in real time here um, so that I can see them and that we can converse. And better yet, you can converse with our guests, right? If you... Uh, if you are watching on autism-live.com, I can tell you that there is a chat there. It's not interactive. It's best used when you're watching something that's recorded and you want to get a question in about something. Just be specific about what episode and, and who the guest was so that I know who to reach back out to. We are, we are available um, as a free download wherever you get your podcasts. All of our episodes are podcast. Um, and, and they're pod podcast in their entirety. So any place where you get your podcast, you can find that. If you're looking for something really specific, you're like, I have a topic and I want to know what's, what you guys have covered. We are in our 10th year right now of doing this. And so there's a lot that we've already covered. And if you want to go through our library, we not only have the full episodes available to you on YouTube, but we also have edited down portions that are topic specific. And you can search for a topic and say, hey, I want to know, um, you know, uh, what, what people have said about this before. Um, Nisha, I see your comment. Thank you. Parker is always so helpful. Look at that. He, he gave you the website address. If you're watching on Facebook, he put it in the comments. Uh, Autism-live.com is our homepage. Um, and Nisha says, my child is uh, 5.7 years old and I have put him in school. He has attention issues and how can I help? Please advise. We have a lot of um, episodes that we have done before on a whole host of things, including executive functions. And, it, and attention is considered an, uh, um, uh, an executive function. And just so you know, being able to pay attention involves a lot of different skills. Um, because not only do you have to be able to focus on, on the thing and sustain focus on it, but then you need to be able to regurgitate some of the information, which involves episodic memory and involves all kinds of uh, working memory and um, understanding saliency, like what was the important point in the story. And those are things that can be worked on pretty much at any age. We start working on attention with babies. Um, and so there's there are a lot of episodes. If you put executive uh, functions and attention um, in, you'll see, and, and I would also urge you anytime, you know, we've gone through the skills curriculum before on the show, and there's some really helpful information about that because there's a series of lessons that you want to work through for attention. And, and one of the keys is you got to start with, 
with working on something that is worthwhile for them. Like eventually we want people to be able to pay attention even when something is boring to them personally. Like that is a goal down the road because we all have to at some point pay attention to something that is boring to us. But we certainly are not going to start there. And we're not going to have an expectation that a five-year-old on the spectrum is going to pay attention to something that is not interesting. And we're not going to have the goal. What I see a lot of times in IEPs is that, you know, the school will say, uh, you know, well, for this kindergartner, we have the goal that they'll be able to sit in circle time and pay attention for an hour. And it's just like, what on earth are you thinking about? That is not a realistic goal for any five-year-old, let alone one that's on the autism spectrum, right? So Parker says, like, for me, math is boring, but I had to work on it. Yeah, to a certain extent. And then you get to a point where it's like, all right, you don't, you're not going to do math. Uh, so you, you know how to add seven and eight? And that's great, right? Uh, and then you can move on to greener pastures and do the thing that you're passionate about, right? So, but we would want a five-year-old about to be, you know, five-and-a-half-year-old to um, be able to pay attention. And, and we would set a baseline of, like, how long can he pay attention right now? And it might be that he can pay attention to something for three seconds. And that may cause you grief and pain in your heart. And you'd be like, oh, it just doesn't feel like very long. But it's a starting point, Right. And you can build attention. It's not that hard to do, um, but you have to make it reinforcing. You have to make it worthwhile. Um, it's like a muscle and you have to help him to, to know that it's worthwhile to work on that muscle. So there's a whole series of events, but um, you probably would want to start by, you know, looking at how long can he keep attention on something that he likes? Maybe note how long can he pay attention to something that isn't interesting um, and then I, like, I would encourage you to be working with a really good ABA professional because they'll look at all of this and they'll know the arc of attention and how we teach attention. Um, but one of the things that they start out with the, in, the, with the very youngest of babies is joint attention. And what that is, is that, you know, and it happens with in neurotypical kiddos, it just happens, right? Which is always fascinating to me because it certainly didn't happen with my child. But joint attention is when you're looking at something and the baby or the child is, uh, you know, notices you looking at something or, and it can go the other way too, but it's, a triangle of attention is created. So you're looking at a giraffe and you look at the child and you go, oh, look at the giraffe. And now the child looks at you, notices that your gaze is going to the giraffe. They look at the giraffe. Now you look back at each other and you're like, it's a giraffe. We're looking at the giraffe. And you guys look back at the giraffe and you keep looking at each other and looking back at the giraffe. If you want to see what this looks like, go to Disneyland. Because it's happening at Disneyland every five seconds with all the neurotypical kids. It will break your heart because if your child isn't doing it, you're like, oh gosh, we're missing this big thing here. But there are lessons to work on that. ABA has really good lessons to work on that, but it's got to be exciting. And sometimes you need the help of another person. So if you've got a five-year-old um, and you're, you're, you're going to school at this point, if you haven't done good quality ABA before, I encourage you to do it. Um, you can also be talking with the school about working on attention. It just, it's just so hit and miss. If you've got somebody that is super good at school, you, you have a tre treasure trove of lessons. But a lot of times school just 
like they don't know how to work on this. ABA, good ABA professionals know how to work on this. So I encourage you, um, search through our videos, look at some of the videos that we've done on attention, look at the videos that we've done on skills and, and the progression of executive functions to give you ideas of where your child is. Um, and, and then write me back for more specific. Make sense? Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, we, I also wanted to give the disclaimer that I should have given this first before I said, uh, for those of you who are new to the program, I'm not an expert in autism. So let's just be upfront and clear about that. That is not who I am. I'm somebody who's been covering autism for over 15 years now in a journalistic point of view. So I've asked a lot of questions. I've learned a lot of things. Still doesn't make me an expert. Let's be clear. I have an informed opinion. Uh, it's a pretty informed opinion, but not an expert. Oh, good morning, everybody. Hi, Nasser. Hi, Alicia. Um, but uh, my other credential is that I'm, an, I'm a mom of an amazing individual who was diagnosed with autism at two and a half, uh, who was considered moderate to severe. He's 18 now. And this is the summer before he starts college. What? craziness, just graduated with honors from his college prep high school. And uh, so I have a lot that I have to pay forward. That's why I'm here. I have a lot that I have to pay forward to help all of you to get to where you want to get to. It's not a one size fits all, but keep in mind, not an expert, but happy to give you my informed opinion. Uh, okay. Uh, we also want to let you know that we do have lots of experts that are here on the show. We've got a great one that's coming up for you in just a little while. Uh, special education attorney, Bonnie Yates is going to be joining us momentarily. Uh, but first we want to do what we normally do at this time uh, of the week where we give to you something that we fondly refer to as the jargon of the day. This is, oh, we have that playing today. We haven't had that for a while in COVID. This is uh, when we give you one word, one phrase, one acronym. We try to figure out what in the hey, nani nani are those experts talking about? Why do we need to know this? Why is it important? Like, can't we just live our lives without knowing these things? And the truth of the matter is, is that if we learn these things without getting overwhelmed, there's the asterisk, right? If we can learn these things without being overwhelmed, they will help us to get to more progress quicker uh, because the whole point of jargon in any field is that it's very specific um, and targeted to exactly what you're talking about. So autism has its own jargon, ABA has its own jargon, school has its own jargon. And when you put them all together, what you end up is with is something called overwhelmed. We don't want you to be overwhelmed. So we first, we give you the actual definition one day at a time. And then we make fun of that because that's fun and reinforcing. And then we work on to our working definition, which hopefully will give you a glimmer, a glimpse, a hope of understanding what the thing is. Because my goal is always to save you five minutes and five dollars. And uh, if we can do that, then it's sort of worthwhile, right? Uh, so, but don't panic if you don't get it completely the first time, because you will, you will get it. And we revisit these. So let's take a look at today's jargon term uh, is FBA, not to be confused with the FBI. We are not calling in special services for this. Uh, I have mistakenly called an FBA and FBI, and people have found that hilarious. An FBA is not the FBI, but... Um, it kind of helps me to remember a little bit about, because the FBI investigates things, right? And there's a little bit of investigation involved in an FBA. 
but it's very specific. So let's take a look at our actual definition of FBA, which stands for Functional Behavior Assessment. Have we got it there, Traven? Are we stuck? So a fun, I don't know what the actual definition that we have is that I would love to make fun of, um, but it's stuck. So I don't, I don't know. It's not going to come up. But let, let's talk about what an FBA is. So a functional behavior assessment, uh, we know in ABA that one of the basic principles is, um, one of the basic principles is that there's a function for every behavior. I know that for a lot of us that are parents and caregivers of individuals on the autism spectrum, that there probably was a day when your kiddo or kiddos did something and you went, I don't that's so odd. I don't even know what that behavior is. Like, why are they behaving in that odd way? And there are some people who will come in and tell us, oh, well, people with autism behave in this odd or peculiar way. No, that's just not true. That is, that is a lie. Um, we all engage in behavior for a reason. And even when you don't know what the, when it, when you don't understand what the reason is, doesn't mean that there isn't a reason. So here we go. Here's the, here is the actual definition. It's a multi-step problem solving assessment process designed to determine the function of a behavior. Multi-step problem solving assessment process. Sounds a little bit like the FBI, doesn't it? Um, but the whole purpose is that we're trying to figure out what the function of the behavior is. And we talked about function of behavior the other day. And I always think of, you know, the after, what were they? Um, it's not after school specials when they used to do, uh, I can't think what they're called, but they were the little learning segments. And they, there was one on conjunctions, conjunction, junction, what's your function? So I always think of uh, function, function, what's the function? I know. I always promise I'm not going to sing on the show. And there I broke that promise. Uh, and now we know why I should never sing on the show. But uh, in any case, I think it's a good song to sing to yourself because whenever you're seeing a behavior from anybody for the next little while, when you're a student of this and you go, hmm, what's the function? Schoolhouse rock. Thank you, Aaron. Couldn't think of it. Thank you. You saved me from worrying about that and waking up at two o'clock in the morning and thinking about it. Schoolhouse rock. I love some schoolhouse rock. Um, but what's the function? If you're, if you're looking at your husband and he leaves his socks on in the middle of the bedroom floor, I want you to stop and think, all right, that's a behavior. What's the function of that behavior? Like, what is the paycheck that your husband gets for leaving the socks on the floor and not putting them the three feet over this? And I know my husband doesn't do this. This is my child that does that. Why, you know, doesn't he get them three feet over into the laundry basket, right? Every behavior has a function. Um, and a functional behavior assessment says we're going to look at it in a lot of different ways, in a problem-solving way to figure out what the function of the behavior is. Once we know what the function of the behavior is, then we can start to change it. So let's go ahead and look. Uh, oh, I'm just a bill. Yes, yes. Now we're talking schoolhouse rock. But let's look at what our um, working definition of an FBA is. Now that we know it's a multi-step uh, 
problem solving process, but um, it's an essential process that helps us understand why a challenging behavior is happening so that we can change it effectively. That's the part that we need to know. So if your child is in school and they are one of those kids that loves to spit on their hands and then rub the spit on the table and play with it. This is, you know, maybe later on in life, they're going to be a Pollock painter and it's going to be okay. But while they're in second grade, this is going to get them taken out of the classroom in a pandemic because that is going to be something that's unhealthy and spreading germs. So we're going to deem that a challenging behavior. And, and like, like I was saying, you know, maybe later on, it's going to be a behavior that's not challenging. But for right now, at this phase in their life, it's a behavior that isn't going to help them to progress um, because we need them to learn and do all this other stuff. So we have to figure out what are we going to do about this challenging behavior? Well, you know, it's like anything in life that you can jump in and go, I'm going to fix it. But if you haven't assessed it first and said, wait a second, why is this happening? You might gum it up and make it worse. And if you assume, well, that's just weird and that's just odd and there's no reason for it and try to intervene from that point of view, you're going to gum it up because there is a reason why your kid is spitting on his hand and rubbing it on the desk. There's a reason. Now, we talked the other day about the functions of behavior and there's four usual suspects, right? We do things for attention. And this is all of us, not just people on the spectrum. We do things for attention. We do things to gain access to someone or something. We do um, things to escape someone or something. And we do things because it feels good, that there's something about it that feels good. Now, there's a fifth asterisk one that we do things for control. But for most of our kids, most, most, most of our kids, it's that those four usual suspects. So imagine if the, the child is spitting in their hand and rubbing it on the desk because that's the only time that the teacher comes over and talks to them and they want to be talked to by the teacher. Then we would intervene in a very specific way for that. But um, a lot of times if somebody is doing something like that, spitting into their hand and rubbing it on the desk, it's because there's a sensory need that it feels good. And that spitting on the hand and having it be wet it's, and rubbing it into the desk is a sensory input that feels good to the person. Now imagine that we have a kiddo who's doing it because they want the attention and we intervene thinking it's a sensory issue. We will blow this thing up and make it harder for the student and not help with the problem, potentially make it worse. And we, while, you know, the, the spitting on the hand, it's not great in a pandemic, um, you know, it, there, are, there are some challenging behaviors where if we jump in and try to intervene and we haven't figured out what the function is, we can actually cause harm to someone, the, the individual or to someone around them, right? It can be very dangerous. So we don't want to just intervene without knowing what the behavior is. And imagine the flip, if we, uh, if we say that it's, oh, it's attention, that they're doing it to gain attention, but it's a sensory need, we're, we're not helping this individual, nor are we helping the group who surround them, right? So that's why we do an FBA. That's when we put on our Sherlock hats and we sit down and we try to look at it from every single angle. And there are very specific steps in an FBA. And just so you guys know, one of the steps is interviewing the people around the individual saying, what'd you see? 
what did you see when the, when the child, like what happened right before, what happened right afterwards, right? Taking their perspective of it. But then usually an FBA involves having eyes on the situation to see if you can see. And I always make, I always say it's something akin to when your car it has something going on with it and you take it into the mechanic. And what does the mechanic do? The mechanic says to you, so when does it make this noise? Mm-hmm. And what does it do this when it's doing that? So that's, you know, they're kind of doing an FBA. They're, ta- they're interviewing you, but they almost never leave it that way. They go, okay, give me the keys. I'm going to take it for a drive so that they can see if they can observe it. And they might put it in cer- certain circumstances where they expect for it to happen, right? Very similar to an FBA because a mechanic's not just going to go in and rip out your carburetor unless they know that that's what it is. So I really love a good board certified behavior analyst can do a good FBA. Almost every school has a BCBA board certified behavior analyst on staff in this day and age. Almost everyone does. If your child is engaging in a challenging behavior and you get that note, they come, they send home and they go, you know, Rodrigo did this today, which just makes me nuts. Cause what, what is it that they think you're going to do? Like you're Elastigirl and you can, you know, from home, send your arms over and prevent it. Um, don't let it go. If you're getting a note home from school saying that a behavior is happening, write them back and go, when can we do an FBA? Because we need to do a behavior intervention plan. And the only way we're going to have an effective behavior intervention plan is if we've done an FBA. That's how we honor the individual and say, what is the need here? Because if the need is the sensory thing, then we're going to give them something else that's a sensory thing. They, ha- they make those silky blankets and those silky pillows. And we find that kids who need the sensory of spitting on their hands and doing this, if we give them a silky pillow or a silky cloth to hang on to or a silky handkerchief that they take out of their pocket, they're happy. They're happy. It meets the need for them. And we don't get the germs on the table. Right? That's what a good FBA can do. So that is why they do the FBA. Uh, and thank you, AC, for writing in and asking us to interview Lori Berkner. We uh, we addressed that yesterday. Cook us up. We'd like to know uh, more about Lori and how to contact her. Uh, and, and I love somebody said, no, the, the Twinkle interview was special. I'm willing to look at other people, but you asked yesterday. I answered that yesterday. So uh, stick around. Uh, and maybe Lori would be on, I don't know. Uh, okay. Uh, somebody says, my daughter is four years old. She improved a lot, but she doesn't understand any questions like what's your name. She can't answer it. How do I develop an understanding? Please help. Um, so the WH questions are hard, um, but they are very specific things that can be worked on in ABA. Um, We have done shows before about the WH questions, especially in talking about skills. And uh, I cannot, you know, in previous shows, I've been able to offer for you guys to go on to skills. They're not doing that currently. But if you're working with a good ABA professional, they can help you to work on WH questions. It's a very specific thing, and you have to be working on on perspective taking at the same time. Um, But uh, you absolutely, you know, there's two there there are two aspects to everything, right? There's the expressive and um, the receptive. So you need for this child to understand when you're asking a question and you're wanting them to be able to 
to understand and hear it, but you're also wanting them to be able to ask it as well. And so you want to work on both at the same time. A lot of people work on where first. And I can tell you that um, what you do is you take items that are really fun and exciting. And maybe you get like a, you, you know, you go to the 99 cent store, cent store and you get uh, those sand pails that are different graduating sizes and colors. And you take things that they like, like if they love the phone, you take the phone and in front of them, you take the phone and you put the bucket over it and you go, where's the phone? Where is it? Um, and, and then you go, you know, lift it up and you go, here it is. And you play with where everywhere and, and you prompt her and reward her for, for, you know, saying, where is it and help her to hide something. So you have another person there and they help her and, and they go, let's say, let's ask mommy, where is it? Um, and so that she is laughing and it's a game and we're learning where, where something is, um, and, uh, and they can be working on what, what is it? Um, it takes a lot longer than we think it should take. Don't give up, keep working on it. Um, but if she's prompted and rewarded regularly, specifically using good ABA, um, for those WH things, she will start to understand them. And then if she's prompted to say them in appropriate situations, um, she will be able to do that, but you have to work on it. Um, but, uh, search our library and, um, and see what you can find. Cause we've covered, we've covered a lot of this before, but be working with a good ABA provider. Um, cause they're the ones who really get this. You can work a little bit with a speech and language pathologist with this, but they, they really don't, um, work on that. And with the level of intensity that an ABA professional will work. When you get a good ABA program um, for a four-year-old, they really should be giving you a 40-hour-a-week program. And I know everybody goes, oh, well, 40 hours a week, that's a full-time job. Yeah, but when we're trying to catch somebody up to learn language, language is so intensive, you guys. If you really want little kids to catch up and to be able to understand and, and be able to convey language in the way I know you want, it's a, it is a full-time job. It's exactly what it is. Um, and if you're, and you can get funding here in the United States in, in almost every state, you can get a 40 hour program for a kiddo who's four when they're five, you can't anymore. Uh, it just isn't happening. It's a fight. Uh, but, but I don't know anybody that's getting a 40 hour program for a five-year-old five-year-old. And when you get speech, you might get one hour a week, but I'm telling you that working on WH questions, that's a 40 hour a week job. So, um, get lots and lots and lots and lots of ABA and they can help you to do that. Uh, our Cameron, our journey, Cameron's new life. Good morning. How are you? So thrilled that you are here. Okay. Really quickly. Cause Bonnie's in the wings. Let's look at our uh, question of the day. Uh, what is one behavior you would like to change? I'm not talking about if you have kiddos on the spectrum, I'm not talking about them right now. What's a behavior you would like to change? Have you asked yourself, what is the function of the behavior? And can you give yourself that, uh, whatever the function is, can you give yourself that in another way and, and work on that behavior that way? Uh, I'd love to hear what's a behavior that you would like to change uh, right into us. And then we always have our topic of the week and our topic this week is giving the right paycheck. It's giving the right paycheck at the right time in the right way um, so that we are all engaging in behaviors that are reinforcing to us 
and moving forward and uh, doing that. I love somebody's written in overeating. It's a major thing for me. There's a paycheck. There is a paycheck. Believe me, I, I participate in this activity as well. Um, and I'm working on it. I've lost 40 pounds in, in COVID. Uh, it's hard. But, but you know, when you look, that whole Noom thing right now, you guys, it's ABA. It's, it just looks at eating from an ABA perspective. I'm not endorsing Noom. I want to make sure I'm saying that. But it is a behavior. Eating is a behavior and we do it for a reason. And there are paychecks for eating and there are paychecks for overeating. There are consequences, but the paychecks are more immediate than the consequences. So uh, take a look at it. What is the paycheck that you're getting in the moment? And can you give it to yourself in a different way? It's a very interesting way of looking at uh, eating. I'm sending you a virtual hug to Humera. Um, so glad that you're here with us. Okay, uh, we got to get on to our guest here because Bonnie Yates is with us, and we haven't had the pleasure of being with her for quite a while because we've been on vacation and you know this, that, and the other thing. But Bonnie Yates is here. She's an amazing special education attorney with the Tolner Law Offices. It is our pleasure to have her here to talk about your rights. Uh, so Bonnie, I think you're there. Hi, Bonnie. Do I need to do something to my screen or no? No, you're, no, okay. you're fine. Um, right. Traven takes care of all that. There you are. All right. Uh, so how are you? You do look skinny. Um, not, oh, no, I have, I have another 50 to go, but 40 is gone. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's actually true. I mean, some of the concepts that I learned in ABA, I've carried over into the weight loss arena. You know, like, how do you not intermittently reinforce a bad habit in your brain? It's not really about standing up and eating a carrot. It's about, you know, anyway, yeah. I just sent you something about that that I think is so great. Um, but I'm really getting way off topic, way off topic. So, um, hi, everybody. I'm from Toner Law Offices. I'm a parent of a grown uh, young man who was diagnosed with autism at age four. And luckily, I mean, talk about simple twist of fate. I was referred to CARD, and he did a full ABA program through CARD. And it was certainly 30 hours a week if it wasn't 40 hours a week. And once you get used to just having your whole life be an ABA triage and you realize you'd be doing the same thing. If your kid had leukemia, you wouldn't check him out of the hospital for 10 hours a week. You know, I mean, so ABA is a full check-in and nobody says it's easy, but boy, some of us got great results. So, yeah. I mean, your, you know, your son is one of my favorite people on the face of the planet. Um, he's a pretty amazing guy. And when he was a little kid, I couldn't tell that he had the personality that he does as a human being card gave him that. So, and, you know, he was inspired by card to work so, 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 so hard. Our kids are really hard. Some of your genes and some of your husband's genes too. And you can see that in him. He's a remarkable human being. Uh, You know, I mean, the more little kids I hang out with, the more I think most of them aren't slackers, you know, they're busy human beings and they want to learn. They want to learn and they want to be positively reinforced. And anyway, we're supposed to be talking about special education here. Um, so I'm going to tell you that Tolner Law Offices is nice enough to let me take time out of my busy schedule and do this, uh, you know, as often as we can. 
We're um, a multi-attorney firm. I think we're over 10 attorneys now, and I haven't counted. Um, and we're also expanding our LA office, which is great. So I've always got somebody to, you know, pick their brain if I don't know the answer. And um, we feel pretty confident that we can deal with these big school law firms because we're big too. And, you know, we can't really be pushed around the way a, a single person can, you know, a sole practitioner. If you need a specific consultation about your specific problem, you should do so in the state that you're in. If you're not in California or Arizona, that would be an attorney in your state. We recommend you to COPA, C-O-P-A-A dot net for their attorney directory. If you're in California and you want to talk to us um, and have a free consultation, we can make it happen. Um, and so what we're doing here is giving general advice. We're not giving specific advice about any specific case, although people do ask questions on the air, but there's really no substitute for sitting down and getting somebody to focus on your prob problem. And most attorneys will do it for free. So, you know, why wouldn't you do that? And, you know, I was thinking about something a couple of days ago that I want to pass on. I have a lot of clients that are attorneys and they're not attorneys in the special ed field and they don't feel comfortable with special ed at all. But what they do know because they're attorneys is that attorneys get much more stuff from people than people get by themselves. And I'm not saying that to sound like I think I'm hot stuff, but I've done a lot of analysis of what goes on in these cases and the kind of results people get, kind of lowball offers districts will make unless you push their back to the wall. And it isn't fair, but let's get practical. So Shannon has a question, and then I have some kind of beginning of the year stuff for people to start thinking about. So cool. Read the uh, question. So Parker had written in to us uh, before about school refusal, and we and I mentioned to you, Bonnie, that we talked with Dr. Grampiche about this from a behavioral standpoint. About what do you do when the child is refusing to, or the teen is refusing to go to school? We're seeing much more of this during COVID, and as we're coming out of COVID. They're, and kids are being told that they have to go back to school, that some of our kids are saying no. So Parker asked if I would also ask this question of you, that legally, you know, what are your thoughts on and what are the rights and what are what what can a parent do legally when uh, a child or a teen is saying, no, I don't want to go back to school? Okay, it's a great question, a really good question, and it has some, it has several pieces. Um, I was minding my own business and participating in a meeting of attorneys in our office. And Amanda O'Neill, who's the uh, attorney uh, at Tolner that's also licensed in Arizona, told me that there's a new diagnosis that I think is going to be in the DSM in the future. And it's called something like digital dependency syndrome or something like that. It's basically kids who were online constantly because of online school and because their parents sort of threw up their hands during the pandemic and said, well, what are we supposed to do? And they are really having a hard time now that they're supposed to um, decouple with their computer and go back to regular life. So um, there could be a lot of reasons that somebody would become more phobic as a result of the public health crisis that we've had to some extent, it might just be, you know, like a learned behavior. It's like you get rusty if you don't use those skills. If you're in the house for 18 months, of course, you're going to be more apprehensive. Um, I think the more typical kiddo reaction wasn't 
not to be nervous about going back to school, but it was a manageable amount of nervousness. It was coupled with excitement. It was, I want to see my friends. This is obviously the kind of anxiety that becomes unmanageable for the person. So first of all, districts always reject this and they always want to blame it on home home problems, (laughs) not home programs. They like to blame things on home programs too. But anyway, home problems, if you can't get your kid to school, it's your fault. Well, from a behavioral perspective, the trigger seems to be the the going to school. There seems Mm -hmm. to be a clear nexus, particularly if you can get your kid to go out of the house to do other things, right? And so you, I I think you have to have an immediate, immediate, immediate IEP meeting to discuss what's happening and to get the school to offer behavior services and kind of wraparound services to come into the home and work with you to get the student from the home, you know, back into school. I have a case like this that predates the pandemic and um, student hasn't been to school for four years. He doesn't have autism, but he has a lot of anxiety. And so I'm kind of watching to see what LA Unified does after three due processes where they haven't fixed things. And they're putting together a behavior team and wraparound services to gradually reintroduce him into school. Now, if you just are not at that point yet and you just want to buy some more time, I'm sure Shannon's already mentioned that a lot of the districts are offering a virtual option um, alongside of regular education. Whether your district does or not, this year you have to check and it might be changing again because we're seeing alarming resurgence of the of the virus now in, in California. Anyway, um, if you can't go back to school, if you're not ready to go back to school, if you're not ready for health reasons to go back to school, you can give the district written notice that you're going to make your student a privately placed student as a response to the district's failure to offer a free appropriate public education. And here's how the mechanism of that works. It's not like disenrolling and suddenly you're not their responsibility anymore. You're stressing the fact that you want them to participate in school, you want their IEP to be implemented, but you can't get them to go to school and it's making them worse when you force them and it's a bad power dynamic for you to be, you know, particularly with an older person. What are you supposed to do? You know, wrestle them into the car? It's, 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 it's dangerous for everybody. So the law does allow you to create a private school in your home. That's why people are allowed to homeschool in California without being um, labeled as truant. The process is um, amazingly simple. You go to the California Department of Education website and you fill out a private school affidavit, which is two pages long. You aren't required to have any particular curriculum. You aren't required to have any particular rules. You aren't required to do anything other than register, really. And so if you're going to continue to do homeschooling and there's no curriculum, online curriculum available, you know, you may have to purchase a virtual curriculum from Laurel Springs or the state of California has a free curriculum, and you could continue the education that way, although it's not mandatory. It's your private school. You can really do whatever you want. Um, That doesn't solve the ultimate problem of the child needing behavior support and and therapy and reintegration services. That's what your IEP team discussion is going to be about. 
And if you can't fix it at the IEP, I think it's a really strong case for due process. But the point is, while you're sorting this out, if you have to keep the child home, there's a legal way to do it without running into truancy problems. Does anything about what I described, Shannon, the 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 hows of how you set up a private school, does that give rise to any questions? Usually people have trouble with it. They're like, no, it's too easy. I don't understand. I think the part that mystifies me that I have questions about is that you, you know, it sounds like you're not required to state what your curriculum is, but I think you are not. Most of us, but most of us want our kids to have a robust curriculum. So then, so if you do want a curriculum and, and, and you did say that the state of California offers a free one, but there are also other ones that are out there that I know several people who've done a home program that they got to pick and choose. I think the question everybody has is who pays for that? Well, that depends. Okay, if you if you do Laurel Springs, that's a private curriculum. You pay for it. That's what we did when my daughter was in 12th grade at Culver High. And she's like, I can't do this. Like, you know, I'm getting A's and I'm like falling asleep in class. Mm -hmm. So we paid for it. It was $5,000 then. It's probably more now. The, there are other private uh, curricula. You have to price them. And there may be other public ones, too, that are available. Here's the thing I want to say about that. If you sign up with another district, like a charter school or, or a virtual school in another district to get the curriculum, and I've had people do this, it changes you from a resident of, let's say, Los Angeles Unified School District to wherever the charter school is chartered. So if you're taking your kid out of school, but you want to preserve your claims, let's say, against Manhattan Beach Unified School District, make sure you don't put your child in some other charter school where you lose your eligibility to special education in the first district. So okay. with the state of California curriculum, that's not an issue, but you know, like with some of these other ones that people have come to me with, you know, they're already signed up and I'm like, Hey, wait, wait, you know, like we want to pursue funding from your home district. And now you've just established yourself as a district of, you know, DEF, school or something so that that is an issue and if you stay in your district though there is the potential that you can get some funding from your district if you're proving that they are not what they offered you wasn't appropriate for their child well, if, if, if they aren't getting you reintegrated into school and they didn't obviously manage the situation well during COVID or this might not have developed then they owe you compensatory education and I thought early in earlier in the summer we had talked about compensatory education, but we could talk about it some more. But here's the basic analysis. In March of 2020, all the schools closed because of COVID. And the public schools thought they were going to get a waiver from the federal government and whatever they did was going to be good enough. In May 2020, Betsy DeVos announced that there were going to be no more waivers. And so that meant that all the federal rules and all the state laws about IEP and implementation of IEPs was going to continue. And so all of a sudden the districts were scrambling because they didn't have their free pass. Everybody's experience is different. Everybody's documentation is different, but we have a lot of experience now with people that didn't get much or any help during COVID. And, you know, I have one kiddo who he went from, I think, 
a 30 hour full-time behavior program to two hours a week. Hmm. You know, another family they're only contacted once. So here's the, here's the thing that's been really interesting to see. I had theories that the districts were going to be in trouble just based on the waiver issue and things that school district attorneys were saying to me. But I'm getting so many settlements now without even having to file for due process because people are viewing that time period, if they're from the district or if they're advising the district, you know, as their attorney, they're reviewing March to at least the end of ESY as radioactive nuclear and needs to be settled. So you should, if you have a school refusal issue following COVID, you know, I don't know why you wouldn't consult with an attorney and pursue that strongly with the district because you want to get your kid back in school. You want to have the right team to help you do that. No cutting corners because the districts are cheap if they think they can get away with it. And you don't want to wait another six months because every month you wait, the anxiety, I think, is unfortunately going to increase. So that's my thinking about that particular subject. Would it be overgeneralizing, overstating it to say that if you feel that your child's needs were not met during COVID, you need to get your get an appointment with a lawyer really today to seek compensatory education right now because now is like the like the beginning of the end of when that's really going to be possible. Well, no, because there's a two-year statute of limitations. Okay. Okay, so it, the two-year statute would run in March of 2022. But if there are things like, you know, what is the term? The cultural zeitgeist right now, school district cultural zeitgeist, is they're in the mood to settle these things. Yeah. And the mood, the mood may change. The money may run out. So I don't want to create more anxiety by saying you have to do this today. But I think today is a very, or this week or next week, is a very, very good time to do this. Yeah, I, I think in terms of that there's a that there's a certain amount of money allocated to this and and I and I feel the urgency for families that it's like go in and get some. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see how the urgency of all of this changes over time. You know, yes. there may also just be a certain kind of numb factor that develops like, oh yeah, yeah, you were another kid that didn't get schooling for 18 months. Well, I don't know a lot of kids like that. Yeah. I, we can't so, we can't be our kids, but you said thank you for answering Parker's question. You also said that you had some stuff to get us because for a lot of people, they're going back to school in like two and three weeks. Yeah, I can't even believe it's already that time of year. It is that time of year, and potentially even that time of well, no, it isn't that time of month. It'll be that time of month in August. Okay, so I'm just giving you some stuff from the opposition's uh, website. Okay, so this is from Special Ed Connection. Uh, young children with autism and significant needs who are returning to the classroom after the pandemic may already be uneasy and overwhelmed. Add a disorganized special educator into the mix and schools have a recipe for meltdowns. Special education directors may want to ensure that teachers have strategies to keep things organized so they deliver effective instruction without distractions in the classroom. Otherwise, children's learning may suffer and they may not make progress toward their IEP goals. On, uh, excuse me, organization is going to be critical when children come back, said Amy Miller, an educational consultant at the Pennsylvania Training and Technical Assistance Network in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, whatever that is. An integrated system is key. Having a system that flows so student assessment guides your programming, which guides the materials you're selecting to use to teach, is important. 
It's critical to have all that organized so instruction can be efficient and effective. So these are some ideas to, to share with teachers. One is post a large schedule in the classroom. Another is organize re reinforcers, encourage teachers to cut slits into a portion of an over-the-door shoe organizer with see-through compartments, then use ribbon to tie it around them as an apron. Put the student reinforcers in these clear pockets so the students can see what's available to them. If they see it, it becomes more valuable and they are more likely to do something to get it. I read that one because obviously you could do the same thing at home. Yeah, I like um, that. For items that won't fit in an apron, ask teachers to put together a rolling cart for each child that has drawers. So this is like the, the dessert cart at the yeah. restaurant, right? It's dim sum. Yeah. <laughs> have them dedicate a drawer to reinforcers. A clear bin on top of the cart can contain all the reinforcers the student knows how to ask for. And the teacher can move a reinforcement from the bottom drawer to the top bin after the student has mastered learning to ask for the item during instruction. Keep a list on the side of the cart in alphabetical order to save time when looking for a reinforcer. Here's the last one. Keep data collection simple. The other drawers in each child's rolling cart can contain program data and teaching materials. Teachers may want to assemble a three-ring binder for each student. It can also contain a student's IEP and behavior intervention plan. Teachers should always be able to quickly reinforce what a student knows what they're learning and what they're going to learn. They can use a skills tracking sheet and graph a student's progress on multiple skills as they go so they can see if a specific skill is increasing. They may also want to use a clipboard for the data um, of the day and the week. As soon as you take the data, make time to graph it. That way you can make changes in instruction right away. If it's not easy to take, the data won't be taken or won't be taken correctly. The system has to be easy enough to be used, but it's that it guides your instruction. So those are some thoughts that you could share with your child's teacher. You could also obviously implement these strategies at home, but that's kind of what they're talking about, getting back into school at the beginning of the year. Well, I love and applaud the idea of being organized. I agree that being, you know, when somebody is disorganized, it doesn't help our kids' programs at all. But I, I'm kind of like... As a former teacher, I'm overwhelmed by the idea of, you know, whether you're in a special ed classroom and you've got 13 kids, so now you've got 13 carts, which um, rolling maybe, carts. Which... Maybe, or maybe you're just going to have one for the entire class, but it's going to be a, a that, really motivating reinforcer. That makes more sense to me. And then I'm picturing if your kiddo is in, not in special ed, if they're in inclusion program, you know, one of the things that we always found was... Um, the teachers were very concerned about having my kids stick out. So anything, any reinforcement thing that they would do for my kid, they would do for everyone, which yeah. we actually loved. We actually, so I love the idea, you know, there were many classrooms that he had a, a treasure box and that um, he could earn tokens to go trade something from the treasure box, but so could all the other kids. Yeah. And those right kids loved it. That wasn't see-through. I like the see-through idea, especially for the younger kids. But, but, you know, I love that we're including reinforcement and being organized and, and looking at taking data in an efficient way. Cause I agree if it's not, if it's not, a, if it's not easy to do, it's not going to be taken well. I like uh, that. As I said, this is my, my uh, opposition research. I have two more quick items if we have time. Yeah, we got time. Okay. So the next one is 
three things to know about doctor's notes in 504 eligibility. So for 504 eligibility, you have to show that you have um, you have a disabling condition that essentially requires accommodation in order to learn in the, in the, in the general classroom. But I thought this would be good for you to hear just in terms of people are having to get doctor's notes for other reasons. Uh, and I know I consulted with somebody in the last few months that needed a medical exemption for the vaccines. And we learned that since I looked at it last a few years ago, each doctor is only allowed in California to write five a year and they have to register with the state. So they've, they've cracked down on those. But anyway, um, here's some stuff to consider. In interpreting evaluation data and making placement decisions, the 504 team or the IEP team must draw upon information from a variety of sources, including aptitude and achievement tests, teacher recommendations, physical condition, social or cultural background and adaptive behavior. This may include information contained in a doctor's note or report, although it doesn't have to. When a 504 team is evaluating a student for eligibility, this could be equally applied to an IEP team, and is presented with a doctor's note, the following can help the team decide how to proceed. One, districts cannot require a parent to bring in a doctor's note to qualify a student for 504, but it might be a good idea. I commonly hear people say without a doctor's note, you cannot qualify, but that's not correct. This often happens in cases of ADHD or asthma. A parent will say, my kid has ADHD and needs extra time on tests, but the district doesn't believe that. So it says, unless you bring a doctor's note in, we won't make your child 504 eligible. Districts cannot do that. The district might instead consider other pieces of data, such as disciplinary actions for impulsive behavior and teacher reports for the student with ADHD. There's not one source of data that's mandated or that is automatically thrown out. We can't say you have to have something and we can't say you're not allowed to have something. We'll consider everything. Um, so here is um, an instance where this issue came up. In Marshall Joint School District uh, number two uh, versus CD, when a doctor stated that a student with a rare joint disorder needed adapted PE and the district uh, did not agree, the court ruled in favor of the district. A physician's diagnosis and input on a child's medical condition is important and bears on the team's informed decision on student needs, but a physician cannot simply prescribe special education. The Marshall case tells us a doctor can't write a prescription for special education, but if you want a doctor to write why they think a student needs accommodations, have them write it. The team will discuss the doctor's comments at the meeting, and it might help the parents feel like they have more skin in the game to bring it. Um, ask for consent to speak to the doctor. Even this is the school district talking to itself. Even though the school district cannot require a doctor's note, the district can ask for a doctor's note and the district can ask to talk to the doctor's office when they receive a note. Um, many times the doctor may simply scribble a note saying kid needs special education on a diagnosis pad. I rarely take a doctor's note at face value, regardless of whether or not you'll have an argument about eligibility when a parent brings in a doctor's note. My first question is, can I have consent to talk to the doctor? Some parents are uncomfortable with providing this consent. If that's the case, offer to schedule a time where they can be in on the call. You can say, hey, mom and dad, we'll schedule a time for the school doctor and parent to discuss the needs of the child. 
If the parents turn you down, document that you've tried to seek consent to speak with the doctor's office and the parents have denied it. So that's just some information for those of you. You know, if you're getting doctor's letters for whatever issues starting the new school year, make sure that they're not too general and they're tied to the facts. As I said, if you need an accommodation, explain why. Don't just say he has ADHD. You know, he has a processing disorder. Be, be very factual. Okay, right. so one, one more thing. Quickly, 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 right? Yes. Title 10 prohibit, Title 10 prohibition extends to discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. I wanted to bring this up. I don't know how much it's going to mean to listeners on the show right now, but we have a lot of teenage kids and particularly those in placement, residential placement, who are coming out as trans or non-binary or LGBTQI etc. So basically what this is telling educators, a special ed connection is schools should be prepared to respond to claims of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity as provided in the title 10 prohibition of discrimination, quote, on the basis of sex, unquote. So the point about this is title 10 is thought about as, or excuse me, Title IX, not Title X, Title IX, Title IX is thought about as a statute that protects women against, you know, discrimination in sports, basically. Right. And, and what they're wanting to point out is that's not the limit of, of responsibility for the school district. Students with disabilities are among subgroups most susceptible to discrimination based on their identities as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or questioning, according to education exclusion Dropout, push out, and the school to prison pipeline among LGBTQ youth. That's a resource. Uh, it's called, you know, it's the the school to prison pipeline is a, is a common topic that we could talk about on the show sometime. Moreover, the national report released in 2016 by GLSEN Inc. revealed that LGBTQI students with disabilities are more likely to face school discipline, discipline dropout, and become justice involved when compared with their peers. OCR's interpretation of Title IX uh, discrimination on the basis of sex encompasses discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. It stems from the United States Supreme Court decision in Bostock versus Clayton County, which reasoned, quote, it is impossible to discriminate against a person for being homosexual or transgender without discriminating against that individual based on sex. Um, so that's just something else to be aware of. Not that it's okay. necessarily going to be you, but it might be somebody, you know, and this is a very Absolutely. vulnerable population of student and especially now. Absolutely. And they deserve to be protected. Good heavens. Um, Bonnie, we're past time, but it was important that we get all that information out. Tell them really quickly where to find you at Tolner Law Offices. Uh, my email address is bhates at tolnerlawoffices.com, and my uh, phone number is 310-245-1968. How's that? That's, that's pretty a, good. That's, that's a pretty, pretty direct specific. line in. Yeah. Uh, all right. We adore you. Uh, I hope we see you next week. Thank you so much for being with us. want to remind everyone. Uh, tomorrow, we have something really important on the show, you guys. We're covering the research topic. There's a There's a new thing out that's questioning, you know, that comment that we always make that people on the spectrum are more likely to be the victims than to be the perpetrators of crime. There's a new study out that seems to suggest the opposite. We've got somebody who can take that apart and dismantle it. And I think we all need to hear how that dismantles. So that's 
uh, that's that's going to be tomorrow. So um, we'll see you guys then. Until then, give your kiddos a hug for me and one for you too. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank you, everybody. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.